Amen. Okay, so um, let's do a quick rehash from last week. We tried to reframe some things, um, and not not too drastically, but drastic enough that we'll need to kind of all be up to speed to um, get a better idea for what's going on here in Genesis 11 and 12. Um, and I think the central thing we talked about was humanity um, as a royal priesthood. We talked a lot about um, God placed the man and the woman in the garden to tend and to keep it, right, to do the priestly work um, in the garden as the very first temple, the meeting place of heaven and earth, so to speak. Remember, we looked from uh, the Ezekiel passage that the garden was on top of a mountain, that uh, there were rivers flowing from the garden, that that's where through the Spirit, God's presence would meet with Adam and Eve. So it's this temple, and we looked at how the tabernacle and the temple itself later on in Israel's history um, mirror the Garden of Eden. And we'll get to some of those passages later, but it's fascinating how much um, the garden, or rather the, the tabernacle and the temple, are constructed to look like a garden. There's trees everywhere, there's pomegranates, there's cherubims, so on and so forth. We talked about that the priests in the garden. Then we talk about the kingly role, right? And we interpreted that as um, extending the boundaries of the garden into the world. Remember, the whole earth is not yet uh, cultivated. It's not yet cultivated. So uh, the whole purpose is to push the boundaries of the garden. And then we got into the, the purpose of the two trees, the tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Remember, humanity needs the tree of knowledge of good and evil to do its task as kings and queens, um, yet God wants to teach them obedience first. He wants to teach them to learn to be good priests, to um, have the fear of the Lord before they're going to go kind of get the keys to the kingdom and do their work. Um, they obviously fail that by the agency of the serpent, um, the devil who deceives them and through deception basically takes the keys to the kingdom, right? We looked at that Matthew chapter 4 passage where uh, Satan tempts Jesus and he says, if you would but worship me, I'll give you all things. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth, so on and so forth, implying that they're under his possession. Um, and then we ended um, by looking at the expulsion from the garden. Adam and Eve exiled from the garden. Um, and I guess we ended not just there, but on the positive note of this promise to the woman, remember, the mother of all living, um, that she would have, she would bear a child, and this child would crush the head of the serpent, and in the process, he would be bruised. So, we ended there, and uh, I guess with that, we'll just flow into where we are now. So, we left last week with humanity, um, again, embodied in the man and the woman, expelled from the garden. Their priestly role had been stripped from them. And their royal role too. They forfeited their dominion to the serpent who had deceived them. And again, their condition can be summed up in a word. It's simply exile. Now that's another theme that runs all throughout the Bible. A big theme, and we'll come to it at the far end of um, our study in the Old Testament. We'll look, at the, we'll look at King David in exile. But they're exiled from the garden. All that the Lord had created them for, they lost. Um, and the man and the woman are destined to 
roam the land outside of the garden. So typically we think, okay, that's rock bottom, right? That's as bad as it gets. But up until Genesis 12, the call of Abraham, things only get worse. Being expelled from the garden, it seems, is only the beginning of the fall and its tragic consequences. In fact, they continue to unfold as the story progresses. And that's what we find. There are not many, if any, bright spots in Genesis chapters 3 through 11. Immediately after the garden story, um, Abel is born and Cain is born. The first two brothers and their relationship ends in fratricide, murder. And from there, the very first murder, violence proceeds to fill the land. A little bit later in the story, there's this strange uh, sexual relation between uh, the sons of God on the one hand and the daughters of men on the other, which produces the monstrous Nephilim, right? The men of renown in Genesis chapter 6. And things become so depraved, the scripture says, that God was sorry that he created the human race, right? So we're just beginning in Genesis 3, and we're getting worse as we go. Um, Thus, the flood. Um, The entire lot is cleared out, except for Noah and his family, who, the scripture says, found grace in the sight of the Lord. It's interesting, Noah's name means rest, and when his father, I think it's Lamech, named him, he said, and he'll give us rest from our labors, So there's this messianic expectation that's put on Noah. So we're expecting humanity gets a fresh start, right? And if you read Genesis 9, after the ark, they come down off the mountain and God pronounces a blessing. And and, and really, it's it's Genesis 1 all over again. Remember what God says? He says uh, uh, he blessed them and then he told them to multiply and fill the earth. If you read Genesis 9, those very same words are repeated. So we're thinking, okay, fresh start, things are going to be good. Um, well, Noah fails. He gets drunk. Uh, well, he plants a vineyard. He gets drunk. Weird things happen um, that we don't really know. S- something with his son. I don't know. Weird stuff. But it keeps getting worse. And then we get to the table of nations. And the chronology here is difficult. Um, what we're looking at in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, probably comes somewhere in the middle of the chronology of Genesis 10. But anyway, we're told that after um, after. Human, or, or, or Noah's family came down from the mountain. They spread out, um, and we're told where they go, and so on and so forth. And it's a table of nations, right? Who comes from who, and so on and so forth. Um, and there's some interesting, interesting things to note there. Um, the genealogies are not at all pointless. There's, there's a lot there to, to learn and to, to understand. But it ends in chapter 11 with the story of Babel. And there... In the plains of Shinar, humanity reaches the peak of its rebellion and subsequently it's all time low. And God's response to what happens with this city that's constructed and with this tower that's constructed um, is pivotal, right? This this is not a story maybe that gets a lot of play, um, but it's absolutely pivotal to the, the, the story of human redemption. We looked at last week the promise of the seed. 
and there's this expectation that someone's going to come. Um, but it's rather vague, right? It's just a couple of lines. Now here, that salvation takes concrete form. It, it, it's given more detail. And again, it's multifaceted. It's not just one. It's not just about the seed. It's about all these different themes that kind of, it's a multifaceted salvation. So um, what we want to do then is, uh, is, is just take our time here in Genesis 11 and 12, because really it's going to set the narrative for everything to come about the nation of Israel, about what they're supposed to be doing, right? why God called these particular people. We're going to learn, uh, well, we're not going to learn that, but it'll set the stage for that. It'll set the stage for King David. It'll set the stage for the exile, so on and so forth. But that'll come later. So, Babel, the Tower of Babel. Let's just begin in Genesis 1, or Genesis 11, chapter 1. It says, now the whole earth used the same language and same words. Um, Our translations use the word same but in the original Hebrew, it's the word one. And in fact, you might have a note in your Bible, an italic or a, a footnote that indicates that. Anyway, it comes up twice in verse one. There's one language and there's one word. Um, I think it's one lip and one tongue in the Hebrew. And then we find that uh, oneness comes up again in verse six. If you want to scroll down there, we find that the Lord says they're one people with one language. So it's this fourfold repetition, one, 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 and the scripture intends to tell us something about what's going on at the Tower of Babel, that above all things, their aim was uniformity, oneness, right? Unity, you could say. So they're one people united by one language and therefore obviously held together by one culture and presumably given that in ancient times there was no neat division between religion and the rest of life, they would have been of one religion too. So one people, one language, one culture, one religion. This hegemonic empire. Then we're told in Genesis 11.2, the very next verse, and it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So, It seems inconspicuous enough, but the telling detail is that they journeyed east. Anybody know why journeying east is not a good thing? Going east. Don't go east. Anytime you see east in the Bible, going east, it's always a bad sign. What's that? Similar, yes. Yeah, you're you're going away Well, you're going away from the garden. So going east signals a departure from God's presence. Remember the garden is where God meets humanity. It's the temple. Um, Genesis 2.8, it tells us that God planted the garden in Eden toward the east. So in other words... Eden is not the name of the garden, right? We call it Garden of Eden, and we think that's just, you know, we use it as a name, but Eden is the region that the garden was planted in. So east in Eden, or toward the east in Eden is where the garden was planted. So within the region of Eden, there's the garden, and it's toward the east. Now, Genesis 3.24 tells us 
that when the man and the woman are expelled from the garden, they're expelled, what direction? Toward the east. So the garden's in the east, and humanity is driven out toward the east. So the actual direction east is not bad. It's good, because that's where the garden is. It's in the east. But traveling east is not good, because why? You're traveling away from the garden. So you have the garden, humanity is driven east, toward the east, rather. So I guess we could imagine Adam and Eve, we don't know exactly what, but they're somewhere in the region of Eden, maybe, still. I think that's the case. Um, Because after Cain killed his brother Abel, and in fact, if you want to do a little bit of homework, um, read the story of Cain and Abel, um, and look, look at it as a mirror of what happened to Adam and Eve. It's almost the very same thing. Almost the very same story plays out. It's just a, 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 different, uh, a different inflection this time. That, uh, that original sin, that most basic sin, just kind of repeating itself. And it happens with Abraham. It happens with Isaac later on in the story too. They, they, uh, they, they choose what's good, right? They see what's good. They did what Eve did. And they end up doing something bad. Anyway, that's all throughout Genesis. But Genesis 4.16 tells us, Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Right? A little John Steinbeck for you. So, the, the human race's transgression is pushing it further and further east and further and further away from the presence of the Lord. And now that story of humanity's journey eastward um, will continue for some time, Genesis 3 through 11, until we get to the story of Babel, right? And presumably at this point, the human race has never been further east in the land of Shinar. Now, if not literally geog- uh, geographically, um, you, you get still the theological point the scripture is trying to make by saying they're out toward the east. So we're getting some serious hints about what's going on with these people and their oneness, right? Whatever's happening there, it's not a good thing. They're in the east. That's not where we want to go. And it's only carrying the human race further and further away from its home in the garden. And in fact, that contrast, the garden on this side, and the tower on the other represent two destinies and options for mankind. He can either dwell with God in the garden, over here, or he can reside in his tower away from God. And so with the garden on the one hand, and the tower on the other, set against each other, right? They're like two poles, like it's east and west, north and south. You have the two contrasting uh, structures, one that man has built, one that God has built or planted. Um, With these two, uh, the picture begins to emerge. And it's that the tower, whatever's going on in Babel, is the very antithesis of the garden. Right? It's a counterfeit garden. It's a phony garden. Um, or more accurately, you could say it's an attempt. It's man's attempt at his own garden. 
to construct a temple of his own making. So you have these two at the opposite poles. And again, not coincidentally, that's exactly how the scriptures present the entire project at Babel. The tower is a temple. So let's continue in the story. Um, Genesis 11, verses 3 and 4. It says, They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So there's a lot going on here, and we'll unpack it, unpack it in time. Um, but again, the true nature of this project comes to light. Um, these people settle in the east, and there they put together their manifesto. They want to build a city, and more specifically, a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Now, we might consider this tower as a literal attempt to reach heaven, a tower that will pierce the skies. But I think we get clues later on in Scripture about how to interpret what's going on here. Now, the first clue is the name that is given to the city and to the tower. Babel. Babel, right? What we know about that is that Babel is very similar to the same Hebrew word for confusion, right? And that's where the emphasis lies. But what we miss sometimes is that in the Hebrew, the word for Babel is the exact same word for the empire of Babylon. Now, why we translate them different, I don't know. I don't know why we've chosen to call one Babel and the other one Babylon. Um, But what I do know is that they're the very same word. Babel is Babylon. Now, why is that important? What's the, what's the purpose? What, what's the connection there? And it's simply that the name Babylon means the gate of God. The gate of God. Um, it's a hard translation to make. You'll, we'll see that in a little bit. Um, but again, it can mean like sanctuary. Again, what is a sanctuary? A, uh, a place where the divine presence meets the human presence. Something's going on there with the name. Now, Why is this important? Okay, we get the answer in Genesis 28. Um, You guys remember Jacob is on the run. That's basically what his life is. It's just a a long period of running from all his mistakes, and yet God is faithful to him. Um, But Jacob ends in Bethel, and there he has a dream about a ladder. In Hebrew, it's literally a ramp is what what it means. But, uh, you know, if you look at all the old paintings, it's it's a ladder or a staircase. But Um, he has a dream about a ladder that reaches up to heaven and there are angels um, descending and ascending on the ladder. Uh, Let me go ahead and just read the passage. It's Genesis 28, 11, and 12. It says, He came to a certain place and spent a night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and he lay down in that place. And lay down in that place, rather. He had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Okay, so where's the connection there between Babel and the ladder? Um, Only in the obvious parable to uh, the tower. The exact same wording is used. A ladder was set on earth with its top reaching to heaven. That's the exact same description of 
the Tower of Babel. So, in other words, uh, Jacob's dream, this ladder reaching to heaven, is a connection point between the two realms, uh, between heaven and earth. Again, when we think that, we should be thinking temple, right? This is, this is the language of temple, heaven and earth meeting. Um, and so it was a place where angels could come and go, where they could visit earth and they could go back to heaven. Um, again, the tower was built with what intention? That its top would reach to heaven. So what does it tell us about the Babel project? Clearly, that it was an attempt to unite heaven and earth. It, it's a temple. It's a temple that they built there. Now, our thesis about what is happening in the Tower of Babel is confirmed by the historical record as well. There's strong evidence that the story that we find in our Bibles, the Genesis 11 story about the Tower of Babel, is um, constructed with an eye toward another story. That doesn't mean um, that the Babel story is based on fiction. It just means that whatever the Hebrew author is doing there, he knows he's he's parroting um, another story. And it comes from the Enuma Elish, um, which if I'm not mistaken, Mike, you can correct me, is basically like a creation narrative of the Babylonians. Yeah, the Enuma Elish. And in there they have a, a story about the founding of the city of Babylon. So they've got their story about Babel. We've got our story about Babel. And I'll read it for you. It says, When Marduk, that's the chief god, heard this, brightly glowed his features like the day. Construct Babylon, whose building you have requested. Now listen to this. Let its brickwork be fashioned. You shall name it the sanctuary. The Anuakai applied the implement for one year, they molded bricks. When the second year arrived, they raised high the head of Isagila, equaling Apsu, having built a stage tower as high as Apsu. They set, it in, the, they set in it an abode for Marduk, Enlil, and Ea. In, the presence, in their presence, he was seated in his grandeur. So, it's pretty obvious, right, the similarities between the two stories. The emphasis on the bricks, um, the height of the tower. Apsu, scholars tell me, it means heaven, um, the heaven. So it's as high as the heavens. And it's an abode for the gods. Marduk comes with these two other guards and uh, two other gods and comes to dwell there. So again, this doesn't mean the biblical account is based on a fiction. Um, it just means that whatever the author's doing there, um, it's intentional. Um, and so I bring it up really only to show that uh, there's a connection between the tower and the temple. It's a sacred space is what's going on there. Uh, a theologian, Peter Lightheart, puts it this way. That the head of the tower would, they hoped, reach heaven is another indication of the religious character of the project. Like every temple in the ancient world, the Babel Tower was conceived as a connection point between heaven and earth, gods and men. So, if that's not entirely convincing, um, allow me to ease your doubting minds. So, after Jacob wakes up from his dream, um, he, after his vision, he says this, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. 
He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. All right? So, you see what's going on there. It's, it's in a sense, the real Babel, the real gate to heaven. So, the ladder is the real gate to heaven and not the tower. And so, reading these two pictures together, um, one against the other, a clear picture emerges. The tower is a parody a photo negative of the garden. God planted a garden and man built a tower. All right, there's your picture. Uh, but there's more to the picture. The people unite together to build a tower, but for an explicit purpose, to make a name for themselves that they wouldn't be scattered across the globe. And this is interesting on many levels. First is that they're project is an attempt um, to counter being scattered. Right? They don't want to be spread across, across the earth. So it's their fear of disillusion. Um, it's their fear of being forgotten in the sands of time that drove them in the first place to construct this city and tower. They said, let's not go the way of every other people but let's unite, let's build this tower that we might make a name for ourselves. So in other words, their glory-seeking, making a name, was their solution to a world of death and change. Right? They were insecure about it, so they said, let us build a tower. Isn't that always the case? Right? Man's glory-seeking is most always a response to his insecurity, that he will be forgotten. And so his exploits... And if you read the ancient, uh, what was that, Bob? Boastful pride of life, that's right. And if you read the ancient, um, the ancient accounts of the warriors and their exploits and so on and so forth, it's also that they can make a name for themselves. And that stems from not pure motives, usually, but from fear. All right? They don't want to be lost in the sands of time. So um, the people uh, at Babel, want to create a name that they will endure, right? So it's that most primal desire that's projected onto a societal scale, right? It's a whole people who are deciding this. And um, the second thing is that their fear of being scattered is in direct opposition to humanity's original vocation. You guys remember what that was? God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply Fill the earth and subdue it. So God made man to fill the earth, to go and populate the four corners of the world. And in Shinar, man gathers into one place to resist that very thing. So we can maybe interpret this on a more theological level. And it seems that the city and the tower were an attempt to arrest the process of history. You know, God says, go, go out and and spread. And they're saying, no, we're going to stay here. There's nowhere else to go. There's nothing else to do because it's all realized here in Babylon. I think it's fair to say that it was an attempt to build an eternal kingdom. And remember, if we keep that connection in mind between Babel in Genesis 11 and the empire of Babylon later on in the prophets, uh, um, Isaiah in particular, and then um, also the book of Daniel, that connection seems on the nose because, remember, 
Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, right? And what's the dream? There's this statue. Uh, it's uh, a vision of himself, really. And the head is gold. And then it's silver and then bronze and then iron and then iron mixed with clay. And each section of that statue indicated um, a kingdom, a succession, right? So the Babylonians, the Assyrians, um, the Medo-Persians, I don't know. Anyway, you can read Daniel, he'll tell you. Um, But, and then what happens to the tower is that a rock comes from the sky, a stone cut without hands comes, strikes the the, the the base yeah the clay feet of the tower or of the of the of the statue and destroys it turns it to dust and that rock grows into a mountain and that mountain is the kingdom of God Daniel interprets the vision to King Nebuchadnezzar the uh, king of Babylon and what does he do he builds a statue all of gold and he basically is saying my kingdom will never fade I'm not gonna fall to this such and such an empire and we are the kingdom of God, essentially. So if you kind of put those together, our reading of what's going on here makes a lot of sense. And again, as it goes, all human empires, um, that's what they're up to. They're attempts to build an eternal kingdom. I mean, consider our own pretensions. We're a pretty humble nation compared to what's come before. But printed on every dollar are the words, Novus Ordo Seclorum, Latin words meaning New order for the ages. So it's essentially, at last, in the founding of this nation, the ages have come to their consummation. The perfect order has been realized. And of course, you know, that's not common to us. That runs to the heart of every empire. It, you know, Rome is the eternal city, right? The, the, the empire that would never fade. And uh, Hitler wanted to build the the Third Reich that would last for a thousand years, right? That's, that's what's going on here in Babel. You guys get the picture that's being painted for us. So in their own way, every human empire is a Babel, you know, trying to bring all people under their creed, under their rule, under their vision. You're all going to be like us, right? So thus, the uh, aim of the proposed city and the tower is clear. It's an attempt to unite heaven and earth to arrest history, and to create an eternal kingdom. In other words, it's the original temptation to be like God, right? He says, once you eat the fruit, you're going to be like God. It's that same temptation projected onto a societal scale. It's the political form of an aspiration to divinity. And there's a lot more going on here that we're not just going to dive into at this point, but stuff about Nimrod and, and his identity and his genealogy. There's a lot of really interesting stuff. Um, so at this point, um, it's the Babel project that sets the backdrop to understand, I think, the most important promise in all of Scripture, and it's the promise to Abraham. And we're going to get to that in a second. Um, but we'll kind of conclude the story of Babel. So in an ironic jab, the Scripture says, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. So, remember, the people proposed to build a tower reaching to heaven, but the one who dwells in heaven, um, he has to come down to see it. So it's it's mocking their pretensions. It shows uh, the absurdity of their hubris um, of this project they were trying to complete. And coming down, 
the Lord judges them. Um, he confuses their tongues, and he brings confusion and disunity, and they scatter and they disregard uh, this project that they were building. So their would-be eternal kingdom is dissolved, and there they go across the face of the earth. And thus, at the end of Genesis 11, that terrible process that began with the, began with the serpent uh, culminates here in the human race divided against itself, right? That was never God's intention. And if you look to Revelation, you find very clearly that that was never God's intention, but it was a, a unity of the human race. Every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping with one voice toward the Lord. Read Romans 15. That's what it's all about. Um, so this was not God's intention, but this is how it ends, at least for now. This is rock bottom. Humanity is divided. Um, things are terrible, but not all is lost. Okay, Babel. Any questions on that uh, before we move forward? Fairly simple. Yes. I mean, I'm sure there were probably some maybe before and after. I think the, the theory that the tower was a ziggurat, um, or ziggurat, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, um, has, a, has a lot to commend it. Because again, remember the vision that um, Jacob has? It's, a, it's not a ladder, it's a ramp. And if you look at the ziggurat, that's what it is, right? There's a ramp that goes up to the very top. Um, it's a staircase. And so... Um, it seems that might have been the idea of the construction of the Tower of Babel. But, like you said, did there, were there some built before? Um, were there some built after? I mean, it, it probably, my guess is that it's probably both, that it was neither the first nor the last. But I, that's just totally a guess. Any other questions? Okay, so it's pretty clear what's going on in Babel, right? Not good. All right, so then now we can move to... The blessing, Babel and blessing. So, like we said, the Babel project constitutes the backdrop for what comes next, the call of Abraham. And really, what humanity attempted to achieve in the city and the tower in the plains of Shinar will be realized through Abraham. So basically, what Babel tried to be, what they tried to build on their own, God says, I'm going to take you, Abraham, and I'm going to do all of this through you. So if you go to chapter 11, you can skip forward. I'll read it for you. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, he had yet to change his name, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and I will curse. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. So if you go back to the Babel narrative, the phrase, the whole earth, is repeated four separate times. So again, what's happening there, the author of Genesis, really the spirit, wants us to know that it's universal, right? It was a kingdom, it was an eternal kingdom, supposed to be, for the whole of humanity. And the promise to Abraham is for what? 
the entire earth. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So again, it seems that the universal aspiration to unite all people around the tower will be realized by the Lord, but in an entirely different way. And the striking thing about Abraham's call is that he's called from his country. He's a pagan. He's an idol worshiper. He lived in Ur of the Chaldees, and most scholars think that that place, Ur of the Chaldees, was either adjacent to or in the land of Shinar, where Babel was located. And if that's true, I think it is true, um, it indicates that Abraham was called from Babel, um, that him being called from Babel is that it's not the, uh, that redemption is not the culmination of humanity's efforts, but a radical break from them. So God says, leave that project behind, everything that's going on there, and I'm going to do something new with you. And this promise is made to one man. Again, it's to Abraham, but he brings his whole family with him. Um, first, he comes with his father, Terah. He makes it halfway. Terah passes away. And then um, Abraham kind of gets everybody and follows through with the vision that he received. But it was one man. Yet, the promise made to one man entailed the entire human race. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so here we can understand something about the story of Scripture is that it takes a drastic bottleneck. Thus far, it's been universal, uh, concerned with the whole of humanity um, and covering vast swaths of history. But now we leave that universal scale and it narrows um, to one man and it slows down to tell his story um, as the bearer of the promise. And we get all these details about Abraham's life, about his son's life, um, and, and his grandchildren's life, and so on and so forth. So it's not that all the nations are forsaken. They're not. It's rather that as the plan of restoration is initiated, it necessarily narrows down to this one man. So the nations are set, a time, set aside for the time being. They're going to be blessed, but first, the Lord must work with Abraham. So, remember what we said about uh, Noah? It's kind of a, a fresh start for the human race. That's essentially what's happening here with Abraham. So God says, I'm going to put aside everything that's been going on, the Tower of Babel. We're going to make a clean break from Genesis 11 to 12, and I'm going to take this one man, and we're going to start again. So Abraham, in that sense, is something like a new Adam. He's a restart to the human race. And the Lord promised that through him, this new Adam, blessing would be restored to the world. You guys remember Genesis 1? God blessed them, and he said, be fruitful, multiply the earth. Here, we're talking about blessing again. And it's not a coincidence, in the post-fall narrative, after that original blessing is pronounced, a curse is pronounced five separate times. So there's a curse five separate times from the original fall to our story here in Genesis 12. So there's a, there's a five-fold descent away from the Lord's presence, away from the garden toward the east. And in Abraham's call, the word blessing, or blessed, or blessed, is repeated how many times? Five times. Five times. So again, all that was happening, all the cursing that was going on in Genesis uh, 3 through 11, 
is now being reversed. A fivefold curse is peeled, uh, repealed rather by a fivefold blessing. So in Abraham, and guess what direction he's headed? Yep, from the east to the west. Symbolically what? Back to the garden. He's going back. And in his return, he's going to be a conduit of blessing to the entire world. Thomas Schreiner, a really good biblical theologian, um, and I've got some books. If you guys uh, want to get your hands on them, just let me know. Um, he says in his book, Covenant, the curses that descended upon the world through Adam would be reversed through Abraham and his family. Abraham obeyed God's call to leave his land and family to receive the blessing God promised. God originally blessed Adam and Eve, Genesis 1.28, but now the promise of blessing is channeled through Abraham. He's a new Adam. We're picking up the story again. And so we can, um, we can narrow uh, or, or divide the promise that's made to Abraham into three parts. Offspring, land, and uh, blessing. So the first is, actually let me stop before we move forward. Any questions there? What's going on with Abraham? All right, we're starting fresh. We're, we're repealing everything that's come before and picking up again. So now I want to take a closer look at this promise because it'll set the stage for what to expect. It's divided into three parts, offspring, land, and blessing. So the first is offspring. The Lord promises in that Genesis 12 passage to make Abraham a great nation. And so immediately what comes to the fore is the political nature of the promise that God makes to Abraham. And this concerns all of humanity. It's a political promise. Now, we don't often think of salvation in political terms, but here, in the very beginning, it's already being couched in these terms. Remember, the universal kingdom of Babylon, or Babel, was judged. And here, in its place, the Lord is instituting His own kingdom. Right? And He promises, not only are you going to be a great nation, but what? I'm going to make your name great. Again, what was the ultimate aim of the construction of the city and the tower in Babel? It was that the people, what, might make a name for themselves. So what they, they sought to earn for themselves, building this eternal kingdom, God just takes Abraham. He's an unremarkable specimen, really. And he says, everything they try to do, I'm just going to give it to you. I'm going to make your name great. And so how did Babylon try to make their Babel, try to make their name great? By building their empire. And how will Abraham's name be made great? Well, just the same way. By becoming a great nation. He's going to be the father of a mighty kingdom. Later on, this promise to Abraham is reiterated because obviously Abraham has uh, a struggle with faith to believe this. His, his wife can't Sarah can't bear kids. Yeah, how am I going to have a great nation if I can't even have one child? And God leads them on this journey of faith, and it culminates uh, many times with God reiterating the promise. And each time, the promise gets more extravagant. He says, not only are you be the father of a great nation, but you're going to be the father of many nations. You're going to be um, the father of kings. Abraham is like this king of kings figure. And he goes to war against all these other these other tribes we learn when Lot gets taken away. So you get this picture of what's going on with Abraham. So here, 
in the promise to Abraham. Well, let me ask. Um, what part of the human vocation is being restored? Humans were supposed to be kings, rulers over the earth, right? And here Abraham has promised, you're going to be this kingly figure. And from you, you're going to have this mighty nation. So humans were created to rule the earth, but they forfeited that rule. And so here in the promise, if just ever so slightly, in seed form, it's coming back into their hands. That rule is being restored. And we'll see that take place in the nation of Israel. So, this promise to Abraham forms the background and foundation for the prophet's later vision of Zion. Now, Zion is the mountain where the temple dwells. Um, garden, right? Um, it, it forms the, the prophet's vision of Zion as a place of international pilgrimage. So there's many passages in the Psalms and in the prophets of all the nations um, streaming to Zion. It's the capital of this Abrahamic empire. And there's many of these uh, visions, but I just want to read for you one. Obviously, this is the most famous. This is Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. It says, Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord, again, that's Eden, the mountain of the house of the Lord, will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. All the nations will stream to it and many peoples will come and say, come, let us um, go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and he will judge between nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. And never again will they learn war. So pictured here is Isaiah's vision of the antithesis of Babel. The nations are not scattered, but they're gathered. There's not division and fear, but there's festive gathering. Rather than a man-made tower that pretends to ascend to heaven, the people say, let us go up to the house of God. Let us go up to the mountain. Humanity is not striving to make a name for itself, but instead longing to learn the ways of God. And there's not enmity, but there's eternal peace. They're going to turn all their implements of war into tools of farming. So you see then how this is this is just bedrock. It, it'll, it'll play out again and again, and I know I'm um, overdoing it, but you'll see this come to the fore um, as the story progresses. So the second element of the promise is the land. Abraham was summoned from his home um, in Ur of the Chaldees to receive a new land to call his home. And so we might say that if Abraham is a new Adam... This promised land is like a new Eden. A new Eden where his descendants would settle. Now we don't have time to go into that connection right now. But it will, um, it will come up again as the story advances and Israel comes to possess the promised land. It's a new Eden flowing with milk and honey. Abundant provision. And of course within the new Eden, there's a new temple. Uh, the Hebrews, once they set up shop... Um, obviously there's the tabernacle, but then 
Uh, Solomon builds the temple, and a meeting place between heaven and earth is reinstated. And humanity realizes not its kingly role when it takes the land, but what? Its priestly role. The temple comes. And so not everyone, but some are called to tend and to keep the temple, the new garden. As the Lord's presence walked about in the garden, in the spirit of the day, so he will walk among his people once again. So, more on that later. Uh, we have kingdom, uh, temple, offspring, land, and then lastly, the third element of the promise. And here's where we'll wind things down. Um, we've already touched on this, is this universal blessing. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham, and of course his descendants after him, would become bearers of this promise to the world. It would be through them, as of yet in an unknown um, form and fashion, that everyone would be blessed. The whole world is going to be blessed through Abraham and his people. And that blessing would, in some respects, resemble what's going on at the Tower of Babel. If not physically, a literal tower, then spiritually and sociologically in their aims. The unity of heaven and earth and the unity of mankind. So, here, from here on out, till we come to Christ, um, that sets the drama for the stories that, story that the scriptures are going to tell. All right, so it, it, you could sum it up in a question is what will become of this promise bearing people, Abraham and his descendants? Will the promise be realized? Will they succeed in bringing this blessing? Or will they fail? And so as the story progresses, we're wondering this is the hope of the world, this people. Um, and if you read through Genesis, you're thinking, there's no way, there's no shot. But the whole point is that it's not their power, it's not anything they do, it's the Lord's faithfulness that brings all this to completion. So there's the, the storyline, there's the drama. And so what I want to do, um, I'll stop to ask a question, uh, make room for questions here in a second, is just, I can't help but take a, a, a peek ahead in the, the story. Um, any questions about the, the call of Abraham, um, the three parts of the promise that are laid out for him? Yes, sir. Absolutely. So if you read, um, it's so cool. If you read Gen or, uh, Matthew chapter 1, it says, the beginning, oh darn it, I was trying to do it from memory. Let me just read it. Um, it says, uh, I'm still in part of my message four weeks from now. Anyway, it says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. It's literally the record of the Genesis of Jesus the Messiah. So you start the very beginning there, the Genesis of Jesus the Messiah. That's what it reads in the Hebrew. And then you go to Abraham, who we're looking at now. And then you go to David, who we'll look at a little bit later. And then after David, we'll go to the Babylonian exile, which we'll look at after that. And then finally, everything culminates in the Messiah. So it's all just this little line that points to Jesus. And so, again, jumping ahead in the story a little bit, Jesus is the true Israelite. Israel ultimately fails its vocation, and they don't bring the blessing to the world. We'll see that in Solomon. They reach the height of their 
um, of their glory under Solomon's reign, but they fail. Solomon turns into an idolater. The kingdom is split in two, and then there's only a few bright spots, and then they end up in exile, and then the Old Testament ends with a Gentile king saying, go back to your land, and there's no promise, there's no fulfillment. And Jesus comes on the scene. He's the true Israelite. He's, he's the one who takes everything that Israel was supposed to be. And he is that himself. He brings the promise. So, yeah, we'll get into that. But that's exactly right. Any other questions about what's going on here with Abraham? Okay, that was a good question. So let's take a look ahead. Um, Want to move past all that struggle we talked about to its fulfillment. And um, the fulfillment of what we're looking at here in Genesis 12 is um, laid out in no greater detail than in Paul's words in Genesis, or rather in Galatians 3. Now, the context of the passage is an ongoing struggle between Jews and Gentiles within the church, um, and really not petty squabbles, but they're battling for the heart of the gospel. You remember where Peter is eating with the Gentiles, and then certain men from James come? And he picks up his tray and he leaves the Gentiles. And Paul says, I stood up to him and condemned him to his face because he was not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. So whatever's going on there in Galatia is a huge, huge issue. I'll spare you most of the details, but I want you to simply see what the fulfillment of this promise to Abraham looks like. They're arguing about who are the children of Abraham. Is it Jews or is it Gentiles? So essentially, like, if I want to be part of Abraham's blessing, do I need to become a Jew? Do I need to get circumcised and start observing kosher and all the laws laid out in the Torah? There were some, obviously the Jews, who said, yes, you do. But Paul says, no, you don't. He says, who, who is the people of, uh, that, that, uh, that the promise is referring to? Well, Galatians 3. 7 and 8, he says, Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. So we're not talking about physical descent anymore. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So Paul appeals to our passage, to the call of Abraham, and calls it a pre-preaching of the gospel. So what we just read, Paul says, that's the gospel. That's what you're supposed to look for. That's what salvation is. And what is the content of the gospel? Well, it's that all nations would be blessed. That's what Jesus came to do. That's what the Spirit was sent for, to bring blessing to the nations. So how is that promise realized? We're skipping forward in the argument. Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 and 29. For all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourself with Christ. Listen. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor freeman. There's neither, in a quite radical statement, male nor female. For you all are one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, listen, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So the promise made to Abraham is realized in Christ. And he was the one from the very beginning um, whom the promise referred to all along. Again, if you want some more homework, read Genesis 12 and then read all of um, Galatians 3. It, it's just, man, it's just so awesome, the connections and um, the fulfillment there. So Jesus is the true Israelite who would bring 
the promised blessing. And that blessing comes in him and uh, by being baptized into him, being clothed with him um, and in him. And in that, the promise comes to the world, to the entire world. So it's not the Israelites any longer who are merely blessed, but it's all people so long as they're baptized into Christ. And so for really, um, the fulfillment to the promise of Abraham, or of the promise to Abraham, um, the blessing of the nations is the church. Right, right there at Genesis 12, there's the foundation of the church. All nations are going to be blessed in you. From the very beginning, the scripture was saying, God's going to incorporate everybody into his family. Um, so it's anticipating the church. And of course, what's the church? A worldwide uh, people, uh, the family of God from every corners of the world. And... Um, let me just skip ahead in the narrative a little bit. We'll talk about this further, um, and I've mentioned it a lot, so maybe you're familiar. Um, Pentecost. What happens in Pentecost when the Spirit descends? They hear Him speaking, not yeah, in tongues, not in different languages, but in their own language. So, so what happened at Babel? Languages were scattered. They started speaking different languages. What happens when the Spirit descends? They're speaking the same language once again. It's anti-Babel. The Spirit unites everybody. So that's what the church is, right? The church is the blessing made available to everybody. And so it's God's family that spreads across the whole earth where there's every tribe, tongue, and nation who are part of it. So with that, I'll give you a little uh, uh, of what to expect next week. We're going to fast forward past Genesis to the beginning of um, Exodus where we'll look at the formation of the nation of Israel and then kind of an ominous picture that's painted for their future. Um, you guys know the story of the, um, of the golden calf, right? They begin to worship it. So we'll talk a lot about idolatry and so on and so forth, but that's for next week. Any questions? All right. That's how I like it. Let's pray.